All right. So I'm going to give my final warning here. Uh, we are doing a show about circumcision. So we are going to be talking about a lot of things that happen below the waist. Uh, if that's a problem for you or maybe you've got little kids in the car and you haven't really talked to them about this stuff yet or – Although if some little kids, uh, the ship has already sailed, I guess. But anyway, if there's any reason why you might have a problem with it, anything we might be talking about, uh, you have now been warned for the very last time. Uh, before we get going here, I just have to tell one story about this. Cause I have this story kind of pent up in me. And so um, we've been thinking about doing this show about circumcision for quite a long time. Uh, I, I go to a church where various people from the congregation often give uh, sermons. Uh, and so this guy, this guy, uh, great guy Larry Nelson, was giving a sermon one day. And he was talking about, I can't remember apropos of exactly what, about how, but how many of the concerns that seem to predominate in the Bible are not necessarily things that we talk about all the time today. You know, in the Bible, there's like, he says, you know, there's just an awful lot about dietary laws and circumcision. You know, these are just not big topics of conversation most of the time in modern life. And so after, after the service, I went up to him and I wanted to tell him that we're, we're about to do a show about circumcision. And I had this senior moment where I could, I couldn't think of the word circumcision. And so, and, you know, if you can't think of the word martini, you can just say, you know, the drink with the gin and the vermouth and the lemon peel. But you can't really do that with circumcision, right? You can't. Uh, I mean, you can. But, I mean, standing there in church, it didn't seem. I just sort of made some excuse and walked away. So, anyway, Larry, if you're listening, this is the show I was talking about. Um, let me tell you who's here. Um Eric Nilsson is a pediatric urologist at Connecticut Children's Hospital, um, and Rabbi Yitzhak Adler is the rabbi at Beth David Synagogue in West Hartford. Uh, you're going to hear, hear some other people as we go along here today, but before we get into the conversation about this, uh, the person that I talked into producing this show was Jonathan McNichol. And so um, here's a little essay from Jonathan, his musings. Katie and I have been together going on five years. We lived together most of that time. And there was a point during one of the formative moments in our relationship, the, uh, the first time we did it, when she kind of stopped for a second and she said, so, you're circumcised. Which, what does that mean? All I could really say was, well, yeah, I guess I am. But that's the sort of thing that sticks in a guy's head, you know? I, I was 33 years old at the time. And it feels to me now like that was the first time I'd ever really thought about it. That there was this sort of defining characteristic about me that could be one way or the other way, and that was one way and not the other way. And I had no idea if it was a good thing or a bad thing or just a thing thing. There's a part in the Arthur C. Clarke book 3001, it's a sequel to 2001, you see, where one of the characters, Frank Poole, he's from our time, but he's living a thousand years in the future, and he's having sex with this woman, and all of a sudden she stops and she says, and I'm quoting here, I'm really sorry, Frank. We could have had a good time, but I didn't know that you had been mutilated. Is that it? Is it like I've been mutilated? It seems like there is that way of looking at it. We sent some interns out into the world to talk to people, to ask their opinions about this. Circumcision is wretched. It's a barbaric practice which has no actual benefit. This is a guy that the interns, Olivia Piper and Adriana Smith, Describe as a hipster dude with a man bun. Uh, it's quite disturbing. On the other hand, in our not a thousand years in the future time, it seems like, aesthetically, our culture thinks of it the other way around. There's, for instance, Elaine's classic reaction to an uncircumcised penis she'd encountered. I had no face, no personality. 
And then one thing that I've learned preparing for this show is that some people really, really like their penises circumcised. There are even words like circumfetishist or the preferred circumsexual for people who get sexual pleasure from the act of circumcision, which maybe brings up more questions than it answers. But I don't know. It, it's my own parts that I'm really concerned about. Is it a good thing that I'm cut? Is it a bad thing? I asked Katie why she'd asked me that years ago, during that first time. I was nervous. It was the first time, and it was a way to slow things down and break the tension. To just stop and ask me that question? Mm-hmm. It wasn't like an aesthetics thing? No. It was just the first thing that popped into my head. Who knows? She's obviously got reasons to think about it that way at this point. I think I want to look at it the way this kid does. He's 16, he's circumcised, and the interns asked him if he'd rather he weren't. I don't know, I'd probably just stay the way I am now. I don't really think it makes much of a difference overall. All right, so uh, there are some different voices, some different perspectives, uh, and you're going to hear yet more. Although there may be, uh, in some cases, a recurring theme here, uh, I'm going to go first to Dr. Eric Nelson, a pediatric urologist at uh, Connecticut Children's Hospital. Uh, in just a second, we'll maybe talk specifically about what a circumcision is medically. But before we even do that, um, you, know, you heard Jonathan say, is it a good thing, is it a bad thing? I've spent a lot of time reading medical literature here, and it, it doesn't, although there are ways in which that question can be weighted, and we can talk about that. It doesn't seem as though there's this huge medical consensus that absolutely if you don't get your child circumcised uh, or if you don't get circumcised, you're crazy. You're taking this huge medical risk. It, it's not at the level of that, right? That's correct. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics actually came out with a consensus statement in 2012 looking at the benefits of circumcision. And there are some benefits. We think that there is a lower rate of urinary tract infections in the first year of life. Uh, there's a decreased risk of penile cancer, and there definitely is a possibility for decreasing the risk of HIV and STD transmission. So there are medical benefits, but what the consensus statement also says is, look, there's benefits, but not enough to justify universal circumcision to everyone in the country. Um, so you can use those reasons as part of your decision-making process to get circumcised, and they say, look, there's enough reasons that support it that insurance companies should pay for it, but as you said, it's not an overwhelming consensus, but there is data supporting medical benefit. It's not vaccination, you know? No, not right. at all. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, Rabbi Adler, uh, in your case, there is an overwhelming consensus. It's not an overwhelming medical consensus. It's an overwhelming religious consensus, right? That's correct. Uh, circumcision as a biblical commandment appears twice in what we call the Torah, the Old Testament, once in the book of Genesis, again in the book of Leviticus. In the case of Jewish families, the health benefits would be uh, peripheral to the primary imperative, and that is to answer to the higher authority. Um, well, I'm going to talk to each of you about the circumstances and, and sort of timetable uh, for doing it, but I'll stay with you for a second, Rabbi Adler. But what we know uh, in uh, in Genesis is God's pretty specific about when you do it. You do it on the, in the eighth day, on the eighth day of a child, of a boy's life. Um, and so I'm assuming that's in general what people do. That That is the guideline. There may be circumstances under which uh, postponement would be appropriate, 
but that's a case-by-case basis. As often as possible, we recommend that the biblical guidelines be followed and that the circumcision take place on the eighth day. Right. And we should say, you are, are, you, are you considered a, a, a moil? Yes. All right. And so, um, well, actually, I'm going to come back to that. I want to just go over to, uh, to Dr. Nelson for a second. So medically, what does the word circumcision mean? What does that mean? What are, what are we talking about? What gets done? There's a surgical removal of the foreskin, also known as the prepuce. So the foreskin is just a layer of skin that hangs down over the head of the penis, which is also called the glands. And it, we remove that so that once the um, procedure is complete, you can actually see the full head of the penis. Um, and and for, um, for you to do that, well, we should say basically there's kind of two – two ways or two kind of moments at which maybe a child would have this procedure done. A lot of it is done like really neonatally, right, while while the child is still under the care of an OBGYN? That is correct. The majority of circumcisions are done in the neonatal period. And that's done using a, um, a little device or a clamp device. There's three different types of devices out there um, to be done. But in general, it's done within the first week or so of life, and the baby is secured to a little board, some anesthetic medicine is given, and this clamp device is applied to the penis, and the skin is compressed, and then the extra skin is removed. And the skin just naturally heals back together without requiring any stitches or anything like that. The procedure is fairly short and tolerated very well. But you brought up a good point. There's two different ways of doing a circumcision. That's in the neonatal period. We generally get involved as surgeons when they get a little bit older. And there can be multiple reasons why someone would want a circumcision a little bit later. But for us, um, generally after about six months of age, we actually perform an operation where the child is put to sleep and the skin is removed. And then we actually sew the skin edges back together so there's some stitches, which is a little bit different. Um, and so those multiple reasons would include, I mean, one, one reason is if, in fact, because for whatever reason, the foreskin isn't really kind of working the way foreskins are supposed to work, right? It won't fully retract. That's correct. The most common reason that we're doing a circumcision in an older child is something called phimosis. And the foreskin, as when children are born, you can't pull it back. It's kind of adherent. It's kind of stuck. But as they get older, they should be able to pull it back. And at some point, um, some kids run into problems. They get infections. They get irritation. Or they can't pull it back. There's a lot of pain. And that's when we step in. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have a circumcision at that point, but it may mean, look, we need to treat this. And there's other ways to treat it. Um, You can use some steroid ointment with some gentle retraction to try to um, open up the foreskin or even another little surgical procedure where you make small incisions. But in general, yeah, that's the most common reason for requiring a circumcision later in life. Um, So, Rabbi Adler, um, this is, you know, in the Jewish faith, it's kind of a remarkable thing. This is essentially a medical procedure, but you do this medical procedure, right? I do it whenever I'm called, and I consider it a tremendous honor to do it. And and so how did you learn how to do what it is that you do? Great question. Uh, When I was the rabbi in Jacksonville, Florida, and there was no Mohill in that community, the circumcisions in the Jewish community were being done by primarily one pediatrician who was running all over town. And when he heard about my interest, he was quite pleased to take me on as a student, and he taught me, and additional doctors in town heard about it and shared their techniques with me, and I learned literally as an apprentice. And, and so how many of these procedures do you, do you do a year? Depending on the year, between 40 and 50. Mm-hmm. And what happens when you do it? In other words, how... Uh, is it essentially the same thing that, that Dr. Nelson is describing? Is it, is it different somehow? 
I'm sure there's some nuanced differences. Uh, the advantage, of course, as the doctor noted, uh, circumcising a child who's only eight days old, there's usually not stitching required. It's a pretty simple procedure. I believe in medical school they say, see one, do one, teach one. <laughs> Uh, the they also children, say, say measure twice and cut once. But that's, anyway, that's <laughs> yes, and uh, the, the children heal usually within a couple of days, two or three days. They're, they're well on their way to recovery. Um, are parents ever, I mean, you know, one of the things that we're kind of discovering and looking at statistics, there's some indication that in the general population there may be a, a, a downturn uh, in um, in circumcisions. Uh, obviously, there's quite a bit less wiggle room or latitude within the Jewish faith. Are, are you running into parents who are saying, well, I don't know, I've got some little questions about this. You know, every once in a while, I do. And the key is to the understanding of the pa- parents' uh, apprehension often will have the opportunity at their initiative to reach out, make an appointment, chat, talk about it, and try to help them find a level of comfort. Every once in a while, rare occasion, mom or dad might not be ready when the child's eight days old. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, from my perspective, the worst thing we can do is force the parents to make a decision that they're not fully comfortable with and we work with them, we talk with them, we study, we provide literature, ask them to talk to other parents who have been through it, try to find a level of comfort as quickly as possible. Um, let me ask you this, uh, and this may sound like a facetious question. It's not at all. But, I mean, uh, imagine that I were a parent who came in and said, Rabbi, why is this foreskin so important? I mean, why, you know, why of all the things that you could be worried about or that God could be worried about or that anybody could be worried about, you know, why has this been chosen? There's only one source of an answer to that question, and that's God. Because from the Jewish perspective, it appears in the Old Testament, and we follow the word of God, just like we allow the Torah to guide us in terms of what we eat and uh, how we pray. This is part of uh, the spiritual discipline of Judaism. Um, we should also say, by the way, it was, we did a ton of research for the show, although I feel like all research about this topic is uh, hard, is kind of incomplete. There's just so much more that you, you need to know and maybe not quite as much scholarship about some aspects of it as one might want wish. As far as I can tell, um, probably the, the largest group of people, and this surprised me, uh, in the world who are circumcised are Muslims because there's a lot of Muslims and almost all of them get uh, circumcised. Uh, I didn't even realize that at all. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more as we go along about sort of global differences with, uh, with, Peter Her- with Brian Herity. Um, but before we do that, um, so um, Dr. Eric Nelson, in some ways – you're the wrong person to ask this question to because when somebody shows up in your office, they're usually showing up because they got a problem or they really have, you know, they had sort of a reason to think about this whole situation very differently than maybe they thought about it neonatally. All the same, I'm sure that that there are people who just say to you, you know, I'm having, uh, we're having a baby pretty soon. We're trying to figure out this whole circumcision thing. And as we said at the beginning, it's not like there's this huge preponderance of medical data or scientific opinion that pushes you in one direction or or another. Is there anything that you do say to them? I mean, I I, I know from Jonathan McNichols' pre-interview with you, you happen to be the father of four daughters, so you basically never had to roll this particular uh, ball down the alley. That's exactly what I say. I said, you know, I have four daughters at home, and I don't have to make that decision. But um, I can't really make a decision for them. All I can do is provide them with information about how the procedure is done, what can you expect for complications, what can you expect for a postoperative course, what are the potential benefits, what are the potential downsides. And 
I, I can't really tell them to go one way or the other. I will say that when I look at families, they really are trying to do what's in the best interest for their kids, and they do come usually with a bias and a belief of what they would like to do. To be honest, the biggest issue that I have with families or the biggest question I get is are people who were circumcised and it doesn't quite look the way they wanted it to, and they come asking for a circumcision revision. That conversation I have very often, but the conversation of whether or not to get circumcised, that's not something we approach too much. Usually the parents have an idea of what they want. How much revision uh, can there be? There is much more than you would expect. Mm-hmm. I, you know, in a typical clinic, there's usually a couple patients who, comes, who come to me, and the mom or dad are wondering, should I have my son recircumcised? And most of the time, my job as a surgeon is to figure out, are there any problems? Or is there any scar tissue formation? Are there cysts or something that's going to affect the function of the testicle or of the penis over the long term? And most of the time, it's not. Most of the time, they just have a little bit of extra skin. And they ask me all the time, well, what would you do? And that's when I bring up my four daughters. And I say, <laughs> okay, I can't make this decision for you. But in my mind, I have two sets of families, two sets of parents. I have one set that says... Look, if my kid is not going to have any problems, there's not going to be problems with infections or sexual function or anything, leave him alone. Don't touch him. I don't want to put him under anesthesia. Then there's a second group of families that say, you know what? It just doesn't look the way I thought it was supposed to look. And, you know, putting him to sleep under anesthesia and doing the procedure actually overall is very low risk uh, with a very low complication rate. The patients generally do very, very well, and they just decide, look, this is what I want. So most parents fall into one of those two groups pretty easily, in my own opinion. Um, Let me ask you this, and I'm I'm sure this is not something that you particularly do, but in my reading, I did also find some suggestion that there are people who essentially seek a reversion, uh, that they want something like a foreskin kind of added back. Uh, and, And I guess there are sort of procedures that are done, maybe using tissue from the shaft and stretching it back over or something that that can kind of do this? That we do not deal with in the pediatric world. Um, Yeah, so we don't have as much um, exposure to it. I have seen devices. I've had a patient who ordered a device on the internet to try to stretch out the skin and that actually concerned me. I had him yeah. come in to say, you show me what, what this is. What are you doing? Because I don't want him to cause more harm than good. Right. Don't but, order things from the Internet and put them on your penis. Yeah, it I, seems I like a bad idea. We don't, we don't at the Colin McEnroe show, we don't support that idea. So, um, Rabbi Adler, there's another group of people. There are people who convert to Judaism uh, as adults, as they're older. Uh, there are many of them, or some of them, probably are not circumcised. Um, it's like a whole different thing, obviously, that we're talking about here. So how does that get dealt with? Well, if it's an adult and it's going to be a more complicated procedure, then we will, I will refer them to, uh, to a urologist and tell them at their age as an adult person, 20, 25, 30 years old, have this done medically and then come back to me afterwards. And we will simply use um, a little prick to uh, draw a drop of ceremonial blood to meet the religious requirements of the conversion. There needs to be a recognition where the function of a mohel ends and where the function of a doctor begins. Right. So, I mean, can I just get away with a ceremonial drop of, ceremonial drop of blood? Because that'd be fine with me. <laughs> be fine with lots of people, but yeah. a drop of blood is not a circumcision. That's just more like a down payment on a circumcision? Not even. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, Jonathan's telling me we have to take a break right now. Uh, when we come back, uh, you'll hear uh, me talk to somebody who's really kind of opposed to all of this stuff, and then we'll uh, respond to it. We have uh, a long distance to travel here, so stay with us. What are you waiting for? It's cool. It's clear. It protects. It saves lives. Would you circumcise your son? I did have my son circumcised just for like our beliefs and I just think it would be better off for him later on um, health-wise and such. Actually I do have two sons. They are circumcised. I was approached in the hospital shortly after they were born and it was just kind of presented as the thing that was typically done and it was suggested that it would be better in the future for cleanliness reasons and that type of thing and so we just decided to go for it. Are you circumcised? Uh, yes I am and I never really had a choice uh, as to whether or not I got circumcised so I guess my opinions are kind of like general about it. I don't really have any opinion to one side or the other. How do you feel about circumcision? It does nothing but traumatize an infant, especially when you do it like right when they're born. I could imagine myself as a baby having been circumcised not too long after coming out of my mother's womb that that wasn't a pleasant experience. And I also can imagine that it lent to a feeling of distrust in my mother because she handed me over to some guy who circumcised me and then just like tried to coddle me like it was all good. I come from uh, Poland. We don't circumcise boys over there or anywhere around the Europe, uh, unless you're in the Judaism religion. But I believe that should be a personal call for each parent to do uh, or not to do for the child. All right. Yes, there are, by the way, just differences all over the world. Uh, those were voices uh, gathered not all over the world, but at Blueback Square in West Hartford by Olivia Piper and Adriana Smith, uh, our interns. I do want to say uh, we have a call coming in right now. You can also tweet at us at WNPR Colin. Greg uh, Hill is our tweet master. You have only daughters, right? Only daughters? Daughters? He only has only daughters, right? He has three daughters. All, they are all named Betsy Cayon. Um, so uh, he hasn't had to deal with this, but you can uh, tweet at him. Here's uh, Sherry from Hampton calling in. Before we go to Brian Herity, let's talk to you, Sherry. What's on your mind? Oh, hi. Um, so I this this is a subject that I thought about very deeply, and my son is now 12. But I just wanted to say um, that for us, it just came down to, well, it was like this big debate, and in the end we did decide to circumcise, but I just, it gave me peace just to say, let him decide. So he is still, I'm sorry, I, I, he's still intact. All right. So, so you haven't circumcised. You know, you're right. Just, you're we right. have not. Sorry. Because, yeah. uh, yes, uh, as somebody pointed out, I think it was the Mayo Clinic, an, an adult cannot con, uh, consent to his own infant circumcision. Uh, so uh, you're, you're allowing for some auto autonomy. That's a good uh, way of spreading out into the conversation we're about to have with Brian Herity. Brian Herity is co-director of the Bloodstained Men and Their Friends. There, I, I should say, first of all, that one thing we discovered getting ready for the show is there's kind of this enormous kind of multi-pronged anti-circumcision movement 
movement uh, in the United States. There are a lot of different uh, organizations. There are a lot of different websites. Uh, they're all saying more or less the same thing about it. Um, we're happening happened to be talking to Brian partly because one day, I guess it was last year, uh, I was at the, at the New Haven Green with my son, and I saw uh, this particular group demonstrating. Uh, Brian Herity, welcome to our conversation. Hey, guys. How's it going? Thanks a lot for having me. Well, uh, we're glad to have you. Explain to people why you are called the Bloodstained Men and their friends. Well, our group is called uh, Bloodstained Men and our fr- and their friends because, uh, you know, that's exactly what we are. It's a group of, we're a group of human rights activists. Some of us uh, are, are victims of uh, general mutilation, and some of us are not, and those are our friends. And... Um, we are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we travel the country uh, hosting demonstrations and protests in high-traffic areas to bring the message to the people that this is an issue that a lot of people do care about in America and that we view it as a human rights issue. Now, um, and we should also say the other reason you're called the Bloodstained Men and their friends is that uh, some, uh, some or all of you wear these kind of light-colored coveralls uh, with a big, yeah. big bloodstain uh, at the crotch. That's what I saw when I was down in New Haven, and it certainly was eye-catching. It certainly got my yeah. attention. But, you know, I just want yeah. uh, to go to one thing that you just said, and, and that is the, that, it's a, uh, that it's genital mutilation. Now, a lot of people listening right now are going to go, well, no, it's not. Genital mutilation is like a, a clitoridectomy or something like that. You know, this isn't genital mutilation. Mutilation. It's a you know multi thousand year old religious and and health oriented tradition. How do you make the case that it's genital mutilation? Well, by definition, uh, to mutilate is to disfigure or make imperfect by removing a limb or other essential part. And the male foreskin is absolutely essential tissue. It is it's about fifteen square inches of highly specialized erogenous skin. Uh, it's a double fold of skin, and the inner uh, mucosal membrane of the foreskin is uh, chock full of highly specialized uh, Meisner's cup, uh, corpuscle nerve endings, which are the body's receptors for light touch, like what you have on your fingertips and on your lips. And they're the most concentrated uh, in the human body anywhere that researchers have found in the male foreskin. And uh, this is not to say that a circumcised man cannot enjoy sex or feel sexual pleasure, um, but there is an entire dynamic of mechanical and sensory function that is removed. And um, as you guys were talking about earlier, there are a lot of men who have non-surgically restored their foreskins through uh, a variety of methods involving tugging um, when you, when you uh, put uh, light tension on skin for a long enough period promotes the growth of new skin cells. Um, so you won't get back the muscle fibers and the specialized nerve endings that were lost, but you can regrow some of your shaft skin and gain some coverage of the head of the penis again, as well as some movement. Um, I actually know many men who have restored their foreskins, and they've repeat, uh, they all have reported uh, an increase in sexual uh, function and satisfaction. All right. At the end of this conversation, I'm going to actually talk to uh, our other guests here. I know there is some scientific literature about this and some even kind of meta-analysis of scientific literature about this question. Um, obviously, there we're not really talking about just one thing that's done one way, right? I mean, one of the things we've established earlier in this conversation is, you know, it can be done on the eighth day of an infant's life. It can be done a little bit later for uh, sometimes for medical reasons. Um, it, there, there are instances, there are 
places where it's a little bit more disturbing uh, and where the human rights question maybe does pop up. I'm sure you're much more conversant with this than I am, but I do know that at least one tribe in Kenya, sometimes there are forced uh, uh, circumcisions of adult men. Uh, and in some Muslim countries, I think especially in, in Southeast Asia, uh, the, the children are, are older. They're like you know, 10, 11, 12 years old right. when they have the circumcisions. I would imagine when you're making a human rights argument, I, I, it seems to me what Rabbi uh, Adler is doing is kind of different from that. I, I don't there seems to me a b- bigger human rights case than with some of these older forced circumcisions than than ones with babies. But maybe you don't see it that way, Brian Herdy. Maybe it's all the same big problem. Yeah, I actually um, I see it all as the same evil, really. Um, I know that's a, a, a strong word to use, but um, you hear particularly in America, people always frame this as as the family's choice, the parent's choice. All parents have the right to choose. Parents say, we are doing what we feel is the best for our family. Well, that baby, whether he's 24 hours old, eight days old, two months old, that baby is going to grow up into the same adult man who had a healthy, valuable body part removed from him without his consent. And on top of that, infants are extremely more sensitive to pain than adults. And when infants have just come out into the world, the fundamental task that they're trying to establish is the development of trust with their parents. And if you imagine you have a baby girl, she's brought out, if she's lucky, she's breastfed, she's held in arms, and she welcomes into this peaceful, peaceful life. Whereas if you're a baby boy in America or of whatever religious you know, group your parents follow that practices genital cutting of boys, then, you know, you're born and all of a sudden, maybe a couple days, a week later, you're thrown into this, you know, moment of pain and fear and trauma. And, you know, the religious officiates and the doctors who perform the circumcisions, you know, all the ones who, you know, actively do it, they'll all tell you that it's a quick and simple procedure and that the baby doesn't feel pain. But if you look at all of the religious officiates and doctors who have rejected doing the circumcisions uh, of boys, they'll all tell you that it is extremely traumatic and that there is no way to truly anesthetize these newborns that you can't put under with general anesthesia. And, you know, there are lots of instances where, where infants uh, have gone into shock or they've bled uh, to death or, or near death. Um, infants have broken limbs from thrashing in pain or burst lungs from screaming. Let me just um, uh, let me just interrupt you just because we're we're going to be very short on time with all the different elements that we're trying to do here. Let me ask you right, this: right. what what would you what would be a good outcome for you? I mean, Judaism is not going to kind of rewrite its manual. Uh, I mean, you know, this is, nor probably is Islam. You know, these are big world religions that do this thing. It seems unlikely that just based on the stuff that you're saying that they're going to stop doing it. Well, I certainly agree that there will always be some religious extremists who are cutting the genitals of children. I mean, the the extreme Orthodox Jews, after they do the circumcision, they actually suck the blood off the baby's penis. And 
even though babies have died or contracted herpes from infection, this is still a rigorously defended practice amongst, amongst Orthodox Jews. I think it's so, just yeah, one I, sect of them. I'm sure Rabbi Adler can talk about believe that. I believe that, that, yes, there will always be some religious extremists who are holding on to this practice. But actually, uh, there are a lot of Jews and Muslims who, who have rejected and, uh, this practice, and a huge part of our movement actually are Jewish doctors, and uh, many rabbis have actually adopted a new practice called Brit Shalom, where they give the baby uh, his Hebrew name on the eighth day, and it's a beautiful ceremony. They just skip the cutting. And um, what I really would like to see done is, American doctors have no place in performing this archaic ritual on children, and American doctors have been harshly criticized by 38 international and national medical associations around the world for not being upfront with parents about the realness of complications in the absence of health benefits. I mean, in the rest of the world where they don't circumcise their men, men don't have all of these health problems that American doctors say circumcision helps with. All right, we're so gonna. I just. I, I don't want to. I don't. I don't want us to run out of time here. We got a couple of other elements that we want to get to. Uh, well, first, I want to thank Brian Herity for joining us. There were a, a lot of things that got said there. Uh, I want to get to as many of them as we can in this uh, segment here. Uh, Dr. Eric Nilsson, I, I don't know. I'm sure you've done much more reading and study about this than I did in the last two or three days. But I did read quite a bit of liter- medical literature about this issue of dim- diminution of sexual pleasure. It seemed like all, all the preponderance of evidence and the meta-analysis of a lot of studies indicates there isn't any real indication that that's the case. Yeah, the the data that I'm aware of, you can find data to support either argument. Um, And I don't think you'll find papers out there that will really convince you one way or the other if you look at all of them together. Um, And so, um, and Rabbi Adler, obviously a lot of things got said there. I I don't think you regard yourself as a religious extremist. Um, This is a mainstream practice of two mainstream religions. Is there, I don't know, was there anything in what you just heard there that that rings true for you or or seems possible? To be quite honest, I have no idea where his uh, information is coming from. To be candid, I do at least as many circumcisions in the liberal Jewish community as I do in the traditional Jewish community. I'm not aware of a synagogue where there's a rabbi who discourages his congregation from following this ritual. I suppose arguments could be developed based on very unusual extreme cases where something happened that shouldn't have happened. But like I mentioned earlier, this is a reasonably safe procedure. See one, do one, teach one. And um, I I don't think there's any... Data to suggest that a baby who's been circumcised feels any less secure in the arms of his mother or a father as a child who wasn't. It's kind of one of these things, too, where ultimately there's no way to know. There's no way to know really what happens in an eight-year-old baby. I mean, I I would imagine, I mean, I was thinking about this uh, today, if in fact there were a particular kind of trauma psychic trauma that were inflicted on a baby than in populations that had had this procedure overwhelmingly in Islamic populations and Jewish populations. We sort of see that manifestation over and over again. And uh, I just... We don't see it. And children, as we noted earlier in the show, get vaccinated. Children cry in a pediatrician's office after a shot. And it is usually mom or dad who has brought the kid to the appointment who holds the child and comforts the child and I don't think anyone in the American community, or anyone in the West for that matter, 
is a less secure child because of the medical attention and spiritual upbringing that was provided by loving and caring parents. Um, we're going to take a break now. I will say, though, I was, I was amazed. I had no idea how widespread uh, this movement is. It's not just that guy's organization, Brian Herity's organization. There's many, many, many sites. I don't know how many people each one of these sites represents, but uh, a lot of very strong attempts to kind of chip away at, at the practice uh, of circumcision. Uh, and there are some indications that, for example, in the West of America, uh, it, it is in particular uh, in decline. No real explanation of why that is so far. Uh, all right, we're going to take a break. One of the questions that I had was, all right, so God says in Genesis uh, that you, you've got to do this. We know that Jesus was circumcised. Uh, I mean, it's right there anyway in the New Testament, Jesus' actual circumcision. So how come Christians aren't all circumcised? Let's find out after this. Yes, it's true. After this, it will hurt to stand. But I need to do this to become a man. My mom says I'll grow taller when I complete this Filipino tradition They're circumcising me Because I'm in grade 3 Like they've done for centuries They're circumcising so we're back. Um, I've made an executive decision. Actually, I made it in consultation. I made it collaboratively uh, with everybody. Uh, but we, we did have some tape of a conversation with a, a Christian theologian about this, uh, but it would eat up too much of the time in this segment. Uh, there's other stuff that we want to do. Uh, so we're going to skip that. Uh, we'll offer it up as a web extra. I can sort of summarize a little bit of it uh, in just a second, but I also, first of all, do want to say uh, some thank yous today, uh, especially to Jonathan McNichol, who assembled the show. It wasn't an easy show to put together, too, because in some ways there aren't as many books written about the, the sort of the meta-ness of this topic as there might be. Uh, on the board today, Betsy Kaplan, because we still don't have Kion Wolf and won't for a while. Our intern is Leah Myers. And on Twitter, we've got Greg Hill, at WNPR Colin. We'd love it if you would tweet to us. We're on Facebooks. We have uh, we on the Facebooks, it says here. We have... Um, a, sh a show page called the Colin McEnroe Show, uh, as well as the webpage WNPR.org, where all the audio for our shows go up. Uh, I'm not sure who played the part of Bill Curry today. I'd have to think about that. Maybe Jerry Seinfeld, though. Um, all right. So we're um, let me just quickly tell you what we would have aired because uh, there just isn't really time right now uh, not to get back to some of the things that I think are a little bit more uh, pertinent. But, you know, this was sort of a problem for the early Christians. Um, the uh, the the first Christians were Jews. They were all Jews. They were all circumcised. Uh, and so there was quite a bit of debate about this. And you can see it uh, crops up mostly in Acts of the Apostles. Um, uh, chapter 15 uh, is where you see Paul and Barnabas uh, discussing, are we going to make everybody get circumcised? And ultimately, Paul says, no. Um, why should we place the yoke? Of, we won't place the yoke of all of our traditions on new converts uh, to uh, to Jesus. Um, and there are um, some pretty interesting theological arguments as to how that actually works. 
also was a fundamentally kind of a marketing problem. You, it's hard to ask adult people to go through something like this, particularly at a time when anesthesia basically uh, didn't exist. Uh, there was one particularly unfortunate guy, though, uh, Timothy, whom you meet in the following uh, chapter, chapter 16. Uh, he's about to go evangelizing with Paul. He has a Jewish mother and a Greek father, I think. He is not circumcised. And Paul just says, you know, because some of the places we're going this is going to be an issue. I'm just going to have to circumcise you. Uh, so he was maybe one of the last guys not to benefit from the thinking that was explained just one book before that. Uh, I don't quite understand how they would know in those other places they were going to that uh, Timothy was not circumcised. Enlist uh, evangelizing was taking place in a very peculiar way. All right. So well, we've got some calls coming in, some questions, and we've got uh, great experts in here. Uh, and I just also want to quickly just go back to this question uh, of pain, uh, something that Brian Harity brought up in our conversation. So, Dr. Eric Nelson, the whole question of what kind of pain um, an infant who can't really explain anything or rate something on a scale of 1 to 10 uh, uh, can feel is one that has not at least escaped the attention of pediatric medicine. Tell us what we know about that. Well, I think it used to be taken for granted that, yeah, we would uh, traditionally just secure the patient and do the circumcision. But there's been very good data in our literature looking at pain in infants, and they definitely do experience pain. So um, that is a true statement, and we've taken that seriously. Uh, anesthetics are given to these little babies. Uh, these babies will get these sweeties, which are sweet things they put in their mouth, which will make things much better. They'll get some topical topical emla ointment, which is a topical anesthetic, or even a penile block, which is a needle with numbing medicine like Novocaine, all in response to addressing that. Yes, these babies can have pain, and we want to minimize that. Um, and, and Dr. Bradby Adler, how do you address when parents ask you the question, well, is my eight-day-old son going to feel pain? And my response is always the same. We have an obligation to perform this biblical commandment, but we also have a responsibility to the child. I always encourage parents to speak to the pediatrician about getting a prescription of EMLA. I explain to them very carefully how it is applied to maximize its efficacy. And uh, anyone who's been to, to a BRIS or a BRIT, as we call that on our faith, has probably seen the baby being given on a pacifier or some other uh, twisted gauze, for example, grape juice or wine during the procedure. We've been giving babies sweeties for a long, long time. We some understood that the sugar in the uh, the juice has benefit towards mitigating the pain. Um, we're getting various messages. We got a Facebook message from Stacy. I adopted my son from Russia at two years old. Could not fathom doing that to a two-year-old boy. Parents I met through the adoption process gave all kinds of excuses to do it. My least favorite is because I want him to look like me. Uh, that makes no sense to me if your arm gets cut, caught it gets cut off, are you going to cut off his arm? Too? That's maybe a slightly tortured uh, analogy. But it is something that comes up, right? I mean, it is probably uh, doesn't come up so much in uh, in Jewish couples. They already have another reason for doing this. But uh, it is something that, that goes, does come up for other families where, you know, do you want to look different from dad? Do you want your son to look different from you, I guess, is the real question. Yeah. I mean, that's actually one of the most common reasons for kids who are older to come in and there are times when we see kids, older kids, coming in asking to be circumcised because they want to look like dad, they want to look like their brother or maybe what they're seeing in the locker room. And so there is a personal choice to that. And there, I have definitely seen adolescents and who are making that decision to be circumcised. Um, let me grab a few calls here. Uh, let's talk to uh, Vicki. Hi, Vicki. I don't know where you're calling from, but you're on the air. 
Hi. Hi. I'm a, a certified nurse midwife from Madison, and I am against circumcision, and most of our clients do not do circumcisions. And my question is, you know, we, uh, even the World Health Organization is dead set against female circumcision, and when you when we say um, circumcision, we think that it's appalling to do it to little baby girls, and I, I can't understand the rationale behind thinking it's okay to cut off parts of boys' genitals, but we're horrified at the idea of cutting off parts of girls' genitals. Well, and let me ask you this. I mean, it, it, you know, once again, a lot of major medical groups say that there is marginally, but 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 not uh, not entirely marginally, some health benefit to to doing this uh, for boys. I'm not aware of any health benefit that accrues to uh, the comparable. I mean, I don't even know how good a comparison those two things are. But um, I mean, some people are doing it because there's an actual health benefit. I mean, Vicky, what would you say back to that? Well, I think that the health benefit is minimal. You know, when people say cleanliness, like we teach little girls how to keep their parts clean with soap and water, and girls have more, you know, folds and nooks and crannies. Um, I don't think that the health benefits that I'm hearing about are overriding the person, the the boy's right to make a decision about his own body, uh, especially when it's considered by many people just to be cosmetic, that the that the medical benefits do not convey enough reason to do that. Don't we make all kinds of decisions for our kids about their bodies, though? I mean, like straight along from the time that they're very little. We make all kinds of choices uh, about their bodies. We decide whether to vaccinate them or not. We decide all kinds of things that right. maybe they but, wouldn't but choose for is, themselves. If you, if you don't feel that there's a, a medical reason, then really this is cosmetic surgery that you're doing to your baby. And with regard to the person who said, you know, the baby, you want the kid to look like the father, you know, like, good thing the father never got his ear cut off in an accident, you know, because then you'd have to cut off your child's ear. I mean, I mean there's so many discrepancies in the logic. Although people do pierce the ears uh, of little babies as well. Hey, I wanted to go back to one thing, um, uh, one uh, medical thing, because this is something that, that popped up, and we talked about this during the break, uh, Dr. Eric Nelson, which is the, that m- many world medical organizations do say that circumcision can reduce the rate of AIDS transmission, although I was kind of shocked but to discover that in Africa there are these, I mean, I think we, we either have played one or are about to play one. I guess we already played it. This kind of We Are the World type song where they have like a lot of musical celebrities from Africa all getting together saying, get circumcised, get, let's get circumcised now, which, you know, even though there are some some differences in sort of the marginal rate uh, of AIDS transmission, it seems to me it sends kind of a dangerous message that you did something so you won't get AIDS and or won't get HIV. Uh, and and there are things that you should do that are probably considerably more prophylactic than that. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point that if you take good care of the penis and make appropriate and thoughtful choices, there probably is really no um, benefit if you're able to pull back the foreskin and clean it appropriately. And I agree with the message about sexual transmitted disease transmission. The best thing really would be to really practice safe sex and to use condoms, for example. I think this it could potentially send the wrong message that if you circumcise your boy, that he's going to be protected against HIV and STDs. That's not the case at all. It will decrease the transmission. But I, I would be hesitant. I would hesitate to say that's the only reason to do it. Um, 
Rabbi Adler, you know, as we listen to some of these people who do call up and, and complain about this or, or uh, um, attack the practice, uh, as we've been saying all along, religiously, as a rabbi, you don't have a lot of latitude about this. This is basically uh, a major part of your belief system. Does it, does it hurt to hear these kinds of things said? I mean, does it bother you when people describe it as genital mutilation or uh, an extreme practice? It's a little bit disconcerting, but I, my greater concern is that I feel many of these judgments are based uh, in, in error with misinformation, people that have not had the opportunity to study it and explore it the way we are able to through a partnership of the faith and the medical communities. Yeah, I think people who would attend a bris and see the love and compassion and concern and care that goes into the performance of a circumcision uh, whether it's in a synagogue or in a family's home, they would find that every um, benefit goes to the child. I'll get in trouble for saying this too, but you know, I mean, there like every life has physical pain in it. Like there's going to be painful things that happen to you all through your life. I, I, and it, even notwithstanding the studies that have been done, it's kind of hard to know how this pretty quick procedure affects an eight-day-old boy. But it just, you know, the notion anyway that you're going to go through your life and nothing painful is ever going to happen to you seems uh, equally uh, kind of um, uh, unrealistic. Um, I, I think we're going to stop there because if I bring up anything else, uh, we're going to wind up uh, running out of time. Instead, I'm going to thank the people who did participate in today's show. Uh, first of all, I do want to thank once again Jonathan McNichol, uh, who one of our charges here at this particular company is to be brave. So uh, this was a somewhat brave thing, I think, to do a show about. Uh, I want to thank Dr. Eric Nelson, pediatric urologist at Connecticut Children's Hospital, uh, and also Yitzhak Adler, was a rabbi of Beth David Synagogue in West Hartford. Uh, Brian Herdy was with us uh, to talk about uh, the opposition movement to circumcision. He's with one group called the Bloodstained Men and Their Friends. There are lots of other uh, movements like this uh, around the nation. They are easy enough to find. If you're interested in their views, uh, you can find them on the Internet. Also, we will. I think we can put the Peter Lightheart conversation up as a web extra at WNPR.org, where all of the audio from this show will appear in just a few hours. Cut, cut, cut the onion, 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 cut,